pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Today is show number two in what I'm calling the Autism Podcast Series, where we take a look at how autism affects a child, not only in how they interact, how they behave, but mostly because I'm a speech-language pathologist, and this is Teach Me to Talk, after all, we're going to look at how, how children with autism communicate, and then we're looking at 12 different approaches and strategies to address the challenges that we often see in very young children with autism. Last time in show number 401, we talked about what is so hard for many of us as speech-language pathologists and other early intervention professionals, and that's explaining autism to parents. And oh, if you have not seen that show or listened to that show, go back and and listen to that because I think that that will really... uh, serve as the foundation for this show and we'll all be caught up in what we're talking about with how children who will eventually go on to be diagnosed with autism, some of the characteristics that they exhibit. All right, today we're getting right into the approaches and strategies to address the challenges and this is all from my newest treatment manual, the Autism Workbook, Developing Speech Therapy Treatment Plans for Toddlers and Preschoolers with Red Flags for ASD. You can find this exclusively at teachmetotalk.com and that of course is listed there, Uh, a link is listed there in the post if you're watching on YouTube. And if you're listening, a podcast listener, uh, you can find out information about that at my website at teachmetotalk.com me to talk.com. So today we're talking about this first approach and this is really really the starting point when we identify a child who is struggling with language acquisition, so learning how to talk, and then we start to really suspect there are red flags for autism. And the reason that I say this is the number one starting point for therapy for so many of these children is because this is where we can make or break an entire relationship or a therapeutic relationship with a child is in those first few sessions. And so many times we start working at a level that is just absolutely just impossible for a child with autism or red flags for autism because as speech language pathologists you know of course we think about we're going to help them what we're going to help them learn how to communicate that always means to parents to talk and so that's what we do when it's when a parent brings a child to us or we or refer to child or if we're in a school setting or wherever we're practicing and we meet one of the our new little friends for the first time and we start to suspect autism usually when we get the referral though it doesn't say that usually it just talks about language delay and and always parents are thinking about that means how a kid talks and so we can really blow it with a child who specifically has these characteristics or red flags uh, for autism when we start there because frankly we cannot get there <laughs> from where that child is because there's so many prerequisite skills that that child has to learn to to uh, has to acquire before he's really developmentally ready to talk and so this first approach I call it meet a child where he is uh, lots of other therapists and professionals talk about this too and may you know call it something different than that but I think this is the best way to explain it to parents and again this is what I say to parents if we can get this started on the right foot, if I can get a good relationship going with him, or if you're a parent 
and you've really been struggling with how to work with your child at home, how can I help him at home? What are the things I can do with him at home? Sometimes parents are really surprised to hear you're not going to start at where the goal is for the child. You know, you want the child to talk, so we think, oh, we're going to set out to do that. That's not what we need to do with kids with autism. We need to really, really meet them where they are so that we, again, uh, establish that relationship first and give them a reason to want to learn from us and a reason to want to stay with us and a reason to want to learn how to interact and how to communicate. And again, that all starts with that one-on-one relationship. And so meeting a child where he or she is means that we select our very first therapy goals, not at where we want a child to be or the long-term goal, but we're just going to meet him where he is. We're going to figure out exactly where he is developmentally, and we're going to figure out exactly what his own personal preferences are because when we do those things, we maximize participation from the very beginning. And as a practicing clinician, I am sure that that is one of the things that you think about too. How can I get this kid to participate with me? How, How can I get him to like therapy? How can I get him not to cry <laughs> when he realizes that he's coming into therapy? And so that that is something that we have to think about over and over and over again for our little guys is starting at the right place. And again, we have to start with what a kid already likes and what he can already do, not at where our end result is. And that is a big, big surprise for lots of lots of therapists too, frankly, but it really is for parents because again, they think that You know, again, whatever that long-term goal happens to be is where we start, and that's not necessarily true. And we'll talk about, as we move through these series, the pre-linguistic skills, or the skills that kids have to do before there are words. And that is so, so important, especially for kids with autism, because those are the things that, frankly, um, create that autism diagnosis. That's why they're not communicating, because they're missing those pre-linguistic skills. And lots of kids with autism can talk. They can say words. They can. They may know, gosh, hundreds of labels for things, but they can't necessarily use those words to communicate. And so, again, this whole series is about recognizing these differences and then uh, uh, tailoring our approaches for what a child's strengths and weaknesses are going to be. And so this very first uh, philosophy or treatment approach, really, really starting with what a kid likes and what he can already do, is something that is so critical uh, for kids with autism because, again, we do not want to drive them away from us. We do not want to create yet another failed setting where they struggle to communicate and so or and struggle to participate and struggle to interact with you and the very best way we can do that is by from the beginning making sure that we meet a child where he is and so again I think this is an appropriate starting point for every child with a speech language delay or a developmental challenge not just those kids for autism but for here it really really is your starting point because that interaction piece or that participation piece is what we so struggle with with those kids. And so what do we do? First of all, we have to figure out where they are developmentally. (laughs) And so as a therapist, that's not going to be hard for you (laughs) because we evaluate children as just part of our our everyday thing, assessment and evaluation, looking at where a kid is developmentally, figuring out 
what it is that he can and can't do. Now, for those of you who are watching that are not therapists, who are parents or concerned grandparents, which, oh gosh, I get a, now that I'm grandparent age, I get a lot of emails from grandparents and a lot of uh, grandparents tell me that they really, really enjoy these shows because they can really kind of take a step back and think about uh, their grandchild because they have a little bit more time than parents who are right there in the thick of that everyday caretaking. And so lots of times grandparents are doing the research and then passing on to their uh, grown children, uh, you know, th these are resources for you or these are strategies or these are ideas. So I wanted to mention that as well. Uh, but again, this is a this is a challenge for a lot of grandparents and parents when they're not really uh, – they don't evaluate children. They don't really under, they they will know what a child does and can't do, but they don't know the developmental norms. They don't know uh, unless there are other young children there, or unless those unless they have a really good memory for what other children did. You know, they're not really really even supposed to know all these things. So if you are a parent or a grandparent and you're really struggling with this, and especially if a child is not in uh, therapy services right now, so you don't have a clear developmental um, assessment or a clear picture of where a child is, use the checklist. There's some great checklists in the Autism Workbook, and uh, the one that I'm specifically talking about right now is just a language milestones checklist because that really helps you as a parent or grandparent understand exactly what a kid can or cannot do. Now, here's kind of a, a kicker for kids with autism. So many times they have splinter skills or things that they can do are, that are really above age level. And so you might have a two-year-old who's beginning to read. Or you have a two-year-old who has a real affinity for a particular area. And so because he's so interested in it, he's learned a lot of information about that, a lot of facts. Like if he likes dinosaurs, he may be able to um, <clears throat> recognize lots of those specific varieties of, and I'm, I might not even be saying the right word here, but you know, things like they can say brontosaurus if they're talking, if they're verbal, or, or may be able, you know, to label um, specific dinosaurs. And again, that's so zany, brainy, smart, but then they may not be following directions. They, they, they can't, when a grandparent says to them or a parent, go pick up your shoes, and they're not doing that, there's such a disparity there. And so it's really, really hard for a parent to understand. I don't, I don't get how he can label all these dinosaurs yet and recognize all these things. Or, you know, he might know how to count to 50 already or, you know, know 12 different colors or whatever his little skill happens to be. But he, he's, he's missing skills at those earlier developmental levels. And so we have to really, really get a hard, accurate, clear picture of what a kid can and can't do. Because when we are looking at where kids, <clears throat> excuse me, where their splinter skills are, that odd, uneven pattern of development, if we start working with a kid right there, we set ourselves up for failure all over again because that that is too hard. He's missing he's missing those those earlier things that should have already come in. And so without looking at it with a checklist, you're not really going to realize that. And so that's why I included that in this uh, particular treatment manual is so parents have access to this information. And I pulled. Uh, this tool is actually from a previous therapy manual of mine, Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual, and I pulled that and really up, uh, updated it a little bit and, and grouped these skills with uh, 
receptive language, how a child understands the words that he hears, and then expressive skills, how a child uses those words to communicate. And it may be even preverbal with gestures and uh, other compensatory things or even um, any, any facial expressions, anything that a child might use to communicate even before he begins to use words. So you can take a look at this kind of tool if you are a mom or again another cons- or teacher and I- I'm, you may not have done a developmental assessment so you want to have something so that you can get an idea of what a kid can do and what he can't do and then kind of what's in that in-between ground which we call emerging skills as professionals what's coming in he but he's just not consistent yet and that's really kind of a sweet spot for learning because kids will make a lot of progress if we really at the very beginning of therapy don't focus on skills that are absent focus on those skills that are mastered so that we can meet a child where already is and then look at what's emerging that's really going to be our first set of short-term goals because we know that if we can just help a kid again move from using a skill kind of in a really particular setting you know therapists would think about okay he can do that with cues he can do it within his mom uh, asks him to do it or when he hears that word modeled but he can't necessarily do it spontaneously on his own so if you think about that as a therapist that is a really valid goal helping a child move skills over into that master category meaning that those skills are well established they're really consistent these things are really frequent they're not just kind of once in a blue moon skills that we see and a lot of times even we as therapists we know this we know that we shouldn't be working with a child well above his current developmental level but it's hard when we're thinking about goal writing or what we're really doing on this day-to-day level to really think no this is this is justified for me to start exactly where this kid is right now help these skills get solid and stable and then we're going to move on to working on things that are new and so for therapists you really really want to use the information that you've Uh, received in your formal assessments and evaluations but for parents or um, again other concerned family members or friends or whatever you happen to be whatever has driven you to watch a show like this get yourself a, a, a checklist so that you can see what a kid can and can't do that's one really 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 big part of meeting a child where he is so that we don't start working on things that are too high of a developmental level so that children again can be Uh, be as successful as they can be from the very beginning and so that again that will really alleviate a lot of frustration for you as a therapist when you can get a child going at the very beginning and not struggle with weeks or months of what feels like failure or terrible sessions where they're coming in they're crying they're overstimulated they're uh, they don't like being there. They're uncomfortable. You, and, and you may look at this, too, as behavior. You know, I've just got to, I've just got to make him do it. I've got, he's got to work with me. We've got, you know, those kinds of things. But that really doesn't work. I don't think it works with any toddler, but it really doesn't work with a child with autism because that uh, lack of interaction there, There's we've got to get that going. We've got to get that, again, uh, so that so that children are more motivated and are more um, likely to pleasantly participate with you. And so that's just your very first goal. You know, when I went to um, school back in the 80s and 90s, we really called that establishing rapport. 
or, um, well, that's what we call it, establishing rapport. And I think sometimes that part of therapy in this outcome-driven age that we live in, <laughs> we forget that. We forget that we've got to have kids like us. And as parents, too, you know, you're thinking about this and you're thinking, well, my child already loves me, already likes me, I don't have that. Yeah, I get that, but a lot of times what's happening is that's fine until you start to really, and as a parent you probably know this, address, you're trying to work with a child, you're trying to teach him something, and that's when, you know, it all goes down the drain, because unless they're doing what they want to do or what they like to do, they... Uh, can fall apart and have these difficulty with transitions and all all of the behavioral things, the self-stems, all the things that we talked about in last week's show with the characteristics of autism. Those things are really exacerbated when we aren't don't really have that that match um, that that again that participation when that isn't really 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 prioritized. So as a parent, you know you think things are going along fine and then all of a sudden you're going to jump two or three developmental levels ahead of where you should be and you just don't even know, you know, you don't even know that it's going to create such a problem. But that that's what's happened. So that's why this information is so important for you even as a parent because it's going to keep you from floundering or wanting to quit because you've done something that set your child off. And so just know from the very, very beginning, these are common issues that uh, professionals have as well. Uh, even though we've worked with children uh, for years and years and years, this is this is something that, again, all of us struggle with at the beginning is finding that just right place so that we aren't working at a level where a child can't be successful um, and, and we really, really, again, get get things going um, on the right foot. So let's talk about what's, how, how do we do that? What are, what are things that we do? Well, first of all, we're going to figure out, uh, and, and this is directly from the handout. So if, how, how do you get this handout? I get this question all the time. Uh, people will email me. They've uh, watched a podcast on YouTube, and they'll email me and say, how do I get that handout? Because they miss this information. The handout is only available if you purchase CE credit, excuse me, for this course, and that, of course, is for professionals, for licensed therapists who need to keep their credentials uh, current every year. We have so many hours of continuing education that we have to do every year. And so the um, this show, therapists can watch, watch the show and get an hour of credit for that. And so with that purchase of the show for the credit, you get the download. And a lot of parents have told me they're getting the downloads because it just helps them really organize this information and be able to think about it. And this serves as a visual reminder <laughs> of um, what we're talking about or what strategy they could use that would be really really helpful for their own child so this information that we're going to talk about right now how do we figure out that just right place to start working with a child and again this isn't you know we've talked about how we get to the developmental level but these are really a child's own personal preferences so we just have to ask ourselves uh, some questions to get there and these are the things again that as a therapist you may not be doing these kinds of things because you're so focused on that developmental piece that we already talked about, but for parents, this is, this is what parents really, really know <laughs> about their children. And so these are the things that we really need to ask from the beginning so that we can implement this first approach of meeting a child where he or she is. So what things are easy for this child? How does he like to spend his time? What are his favorite toys, activities, and foods? And when is he or she at his or her best? And opposite ends of the uh, spectrum for for this kind of questioning when are she is he or she at it their worst 
what does he dislike or avoid and what is frustrating for this child and so looking at those questions and and thinking about what we've already talked about here is we're going to start with therapy activities that a kid likes and we're going to start with things that he already enjoys and so again we as as people we do things that we are good at right and so that's again where um lots of kind of the rub is for us as therapists because again and even as parents who are trying to work with their own children at home and and you know get get them to do the things that they haven't been able to do yet like talk we do think oh we're going to start there we're going to start at that level and then (laughs) it's just too hard and so we have to back that way up and think about beginning with things that kids already like that they can already do and things that they're already good at and so we have to be intentional about including as many individual preferences as possible when we start to work with a child and do what a kid enjoys and so these questions will really really help you and so as a therapist I hope that you are not just um, don't kind of have the same sort of routines for every single kid without really thinking about what is it that that this kid is good at? What is it that he that he can show me his strengths that he can already do? So these questions are a super super guide for us uh, to help us at the beginning, so we don't really really struggle to um, like I've already said five or six times now get started on the right foot with a kid. So I like that um, asking these questions and then hearing what parents have to say. And another thing that this really really helps with is that we really enforce a parent's instincts when we're asking these kinds of questions, and that's what when we had the big overhaul in early intervention, I guess now, gosh, close to 20 years ago, where we really started focusing on uh, on the IFSP with kids with what every family's routines are and what they already do and what what they and what they feel like is good and what they feel like is not working and so this is just an extension of that and you should be getting that information already but sometimes I, I guess too we as therapists we straight into professional mode <clears throat> excuse me without really really paying enough attention to this and so that again is all part of this just how do, how do we get this going in the right direction how do we get this going especially for a child who may have already had a lot of negative experiences in therapy um, you know when I first really went into private practice and uh, and again about uh, 20 years ago and I kind of, in in my little area where I was, I sort of became known as the replacement therapist. So when something wasn't working out with a family or a child and, you know, they were going to get a new therapist, boy, I got a lot of (laughs) kids as kind of like, this isn't going well. We got to try something different. And so a lot of times kids that I started to see, especially, and this was at the very beginning when autism was, we did not... It's not as, it was not as prolific as it is now, and so not as widespread. And so lots and lots of uh, referrals that I got in the children that I saw at the beginning, it, they already had a history of negativity with a therapist. And so, and I bet you in your own career, you've seen that as well. Well, you're not the very first person to see a kid. And so you've got to kind of come in and sometimes we think about cleaning up <laughs> and fixing some previous mistakes. And so if he... If the first person or first three people or or whatever 
couldn't get things going in the right direction with a kid, can never quite get in there and get on his page or meet that child where he is, there might be a lot of negativity. You might already have some kids on your caseload right now that that's happening with you. I have a little boy who I just adore who in the last two visits has suddenly started not liking me as much anymore. And boy, that you, again, this is where you have to think, I got to meet him where he is. I've got to get back in there so that we, again, can can get to reciprocity, so we can get to turn taking, so we can get to joint attention. All of these things that we know that we want to develop, guys, we don't get there unless we first meet that child uh, where he is at the very, very beginning. And so those are some questions that we can ask parents. And again, as a parent, if you're thinking, when I, I'm going to work with my kid here who's not talking and who, you know, we're pretty sure has autism. And you might think you're going to design a whole little therapy space for your child and you're going to get a table and some chairs and you're going to sit down and work on that. And this is, you know, for, for some kids that, that will work. But for most young children with autism, that's not, not what we need to do at all. We need to start with what they already like. We need to start with what their routines already are and insert ourselves and make ourselves a part of that and get in there and do what they can already do. So what does that mean? Let, let's go back and do some examples with what this means. And this is going to, let's take this straight from um, the, the autism workbook so that you can really, really, um, see what this book is about if you want to but I want to I, again I want to just really give you some concrete examples so let's say that you are a speech language pathologist and you've gotten a referral for a new little girl who isn't saying any words and so you're going in and you've already assessed her but you're going in and you know you're you're the IFSP goal says your IEP whatever if she's older, well, she's two, so it would be an IFSP, but it's use words, you know, to communicate her wants and needs to her parents and others most of the time, you know, so whatever all your little requirements are to write that goal and your service coordinator has done a good job, you know, getting that on the plan, and so you go in, but she's nonverbal, and so parents do sometimes think, well, and, and as a therapist, you kind of may still be there where you're like, okay, we're going to work on words. I'm getting straight to express language but why do we do that with the kid let's say this little girl who again she's not talking and then you start to really really she's you don't have her attention she's just kind of all over the place you try to get in front of her let's say you have a ball toy and you're trying to get in front of her and you you know the goal really is for her to say ball but no matter what you do you know how many times you hold it in front of her and say ball say ball you know and she's she can't do it yet she's doing everything she can to try to get away from you and so you're still gonna you know what do we do we just sometimes we just keep on and on and on without any regard for this is too hard this is too, she, she keeps, she doesn't even really seem to like this ball toy. She keeps gravitating over to her older brother's puzzle. That's, that's a 200-piece puzzle over there. What, what's, what's going on with that? And so, again, I, and I know I'm being really simplistic, and I, I'm not, and, and I'm not trying to be, I'm just trying to use examples that I hope that all of you can relate to. And so with this little girl, again, you start to realize if you kind of are taking a look at where she is developmentally and you kind of go through your pre-linguistic skills here, you think, well, you know, I can't get all the way up to <laughs> using words, you know, because she may not even understand 
receptively what ball is. And so, you know, you think, well, how am I going to get her to say this, you know, because that this isn't a really functional word for her yet. It doesn't really mean anything. And so then, you know, you're kind of just backing her down the developmental levels and figuring out, you know, where this little girl is. Like, gosh, I can't work on expressive language with her. We've got to look at where her receptive language is. And then you're like, okay, Anytime I'm asking her to follow a command, she's not really even paying attention to me. And you think, well, wow, that's kind of down here at this cognitive level, this interacting level, this social level. You know, i got to get there first. And so that's what this whole uh, focus number one from the Autism Workbook is about, is about how to meet a child where she is. And so with that kind of kid who's really, you know, you're trying to get her to pay attention to the ball toy. She doesn't have any interest in that, but she does like the 200-piece puzzle, which you know is well really above what you would expect her to be able to do, but that's that's what she likes. What are you going to do with that? What is she doing with that? So you get over there and you watch her and you figure out, okay, you know, what what how can I get in there? What is she doing? And the very easiest way to do that is to do what a child is already doing. Doing. So if she is over there just flipping the puzzle pieces over to look at the puzzle pieces, that's the easiest way to kind of get in there is just to imitate what she does. And again, your focus here is only for pleasant participation, meaning you do not, you want her to stay with you. You want her to want to be with you and not to want to move away from you, not to try to go do something else, not to, um, not, not to do anything that would be negative there, not to claw your eyes out because you've touched your puzzle piece. Your goal there is pleasant participation. And again, for most children who have red flags with autism, that is us joining them at the beginning and us doing what they can already do. And let's say that this little girl who, again, is nonverbal, what are some other things that she could be doing? Well, she might sit and look at the puzzle piece. And so, you know, you might have your therapist hat on. And again, you might try to get her to do all kinds of things. You might think, I'm going to count the puzzle pieces with her. I'm going to do whatever. It may or may not work. You've got to really, really watch for what she's doing you know and if you and if I mean for me for a little girl like that my goal there would again be pleasant participation or moving on to her like letting me look at the puzzle piece with her and again you might be thinking okay let's get her to show me the puzzle piece but guys unless she's going to let you join her first there's really no you're not there yet there's no hope of her really wanting to initiate that with you if she's again can't tolerate that um, closeness or tolerate you in her perimeter where she's going to let you in. And so, again, you've got to really uh, figure out what, what she's doing with this puzzle piece, what what are, what are these things that she likes over here? Why, did, why does she like this? What are some things I can do that aren't too intrusive? And so you always want to match what a child is doing. And then once you've gotten that established, once you she is comfortable and once you are comfortable <laughs> there, then you bump it up a tiny little a tiny little bump but to meet a child where he is we're only just going for that pleasant participation at the beginning where just cooperating and being together is what you want to do and so as a therapist you may be wondering how do I write a goal for that what are what are my goals and you're still going to keep your long-term goals but your short-term goals and I've listed some of them in uh, the autism workbook for but potential goals for this focus child will enjoy participating in preferred play activities and everyday routines at home with another person for longer and longer periods of time and again let let's, let me just say this 
standards for goal writing vary widely, <laughs> uh, depending on where you are, if, if reimbursement issues, whatever your program requirements are, these are just kind of your starting points. And so you may or may not have to put a percentage of time set there so that you can make something super measurable. Um, I'm not really into all that. <laughs> I just want to tell you what the meat of your goal should be, and then you go adjust it uh, to whatever those requirements might be. But a second goal for this focus, a child will intentionally interact with others during preferred play activities and everyday routines. And so intentionally interact, what's that going to be? Well, it would be not just talking, but things like eye contact, which we, uh, again, is a social skill. Things like gestures, you know, is he, uh, things like showing, you know, really early gestures, not just pointing or waving or nodding yes, yes and no, those kinds of things, but the things that even come before that, you know, giving you something, taking something from you. That might be the, the example that we were using with the little girl with the, who didn't want to play with a ball toy with you, but she wanted her brother older brother's 200 piece puzzle you know that might be one of your first little goals is just getting her to uh, give you the puzzle piece or take a puzzle piece from you and again that intentional interaction back and forth and let me say thankfully all kids even kids with autism may not may not be here they may be this may not be as much of a challenge for them as as or or certain days that may be more a challenge. But again, you've got to kind of meet a kid where they are every day <laughs> until you uh, get them further along developmentally. And so this might be something, you know, these kinds of goals, these kinds of things, you know, what do I do when when a child just isn't, uh, you know, you've got to get their attention first. You've got, you've got to get that participation established first. And again, so something like cooperating with others, preferred play activities, sharing attention with an adult or even another child if you kind of want to go there yet during a preferred play activity. And so those are just some ideas um, there that you might use. Thankfully, lots of us don't have to record short-term goals like that for every session every week. We should. But um, if you're worried about kind of writing that goal or how that could look, these are some starting points for you if you um, want to think about it in those kinds of uh, terms. And so I, let me say one other thing as before we kind of move on and talk about more specific things. And I tell parents this all the time, and I try to record this or write this in some way in every book that um, I publish that a lots of times parents or therapists as they're hearing this kind of information they start to realize right in the middle of it gosh I have really messed up <laughs> I have really worked on the wrong kinds of things for a while with a child so I you know what am I going to do you're just going to start over just don't beat yourself up too much just the very next time you start with the child just pretend okay this is it this is you know <laughs> Point two, you know, this is Emily point two of what her therapy plan is going to be. And we're going to back this way up and see if we can uh, get start, get this started a little better so that we can get this participation um, going. And again, with parents, let's back up to kind of this developmental level piece and talk about this a little bit more. A lot of times they just are not quite ready to see this, um, these kinds of issues with their child. And so sometimes it's just going to take a while for it to sink in that a kid isn't as far along developmentally as they should be. And so many times, you know, I have parents say to me, 
all the time something like <laughs> it but Laura it's just talking it's just talking like I know what you're saying about autism and I can see some of these little things that you've that you try to talk to me about but honestly if I could just get him to talk none of that other stuff would matter and she's right on some level when a mom says that if I could just get him to talk some of this other stuff wouldn't matter that's true but the point is, you can't get him to talk until you take care of these other things. And so, I mean, I talked to a mom about that yesterday. And it, again, it is so hard to sink in for so many parents. And so we just have to give them time to deal with that without beating them over the head. And again, I think I said this last week in our uh, opening show with this series is some parents are ready to hear that explanation right at the beginning. And, and I had a mom say this to me too yesterday. She said, you know, a lot of times I think it would be good if I really, really knew for sure if this were autism. And if I were, you know, went ahead and had that team assessment, went ahead and did all that, that the, you know, doctor has talked about. And, you know, in one breath, she's saying that, but then Two sentences later, she says, but you know, I think I just, I think I just don't want to know yet. I think I just want to keep doing what we're going to do. And, you know, she's right about that too, because when we are working on the things that we are supposed to be working on, does it really matter yet if they have a diagnosis? Not yet. And so when they're two, not even three, you know, the average age to be diagnosed with autism is four, we do want parents to get services. We do want them to get intervention. But again, some parents just aren't at that point where they're really ready to process. Uh, where they're really ready to even pick up the phone, to schedule the evaluation. All that they are emotionally ready for at this point is <laughs> speech therapy with you or early intervention program or whatever that happens to be. And so, again, sometimes parents aren't really wanting to know yet. They can't really accept that yet. And so because of that, too, they also may not even want to know specifically, you know, well, he can't do this and he can't do this and he can't do that. And so we do need to focus on strengths with parents and really, really, uh, you know, as we're talking about this whole approach, work on, start with what a kid can already do. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's that whole, um, it's that whole, you've got to be able to hold those two differing opinions with as much, truth and belief as you can you know we want parents to know exactly where a child is functioning and what he can and can't do but at the same time it's really okay when they're so young if they don't have that firm diagnosis yet if a parent really can't go there yet as long as you are doing the same interventions and that he's getting the same level of services that he would without a diagnosis. And frankly, for some kids, the only reason that they need that diagnosis is so that they have access to those services. And so just try to, as a therapist, really keep that in mind. And I think I shared on last week's show that I really tried in the, you know, I've gone through periods of my career where, you know, I'm really going to make sure everybody knows right off the bat, this is autism, this is autism, this is autism, this is autism. But, you know, now that I'm older and wiser, if a parent can't go there yet, that's okay because they're going to hear it. They're going to get it. They're going to keep hearing it. You know, you will be, that child will be off your caseload probably. <laughs> Um, 
at some point in the future, right? But that mom has that child forever. And so if he or she is on the spectrum, you're not going to be the only person that says that, especially, you know, if you're getting them when they're two. Your mom's going to hear that over and over and over. So don't be so concerned if you have a parent who, again, just can't go there yet. Just meet a parent where they are with where they're currently processing and currently um, understanding exactly what's going on with their child and and we can show kindness and compassion as we are again meeting parents where they are with that um all right so we've really talked about how we can uh, get that developmental level and how we want to be sure that we are accurately evaluating children and this happens so much for us who are in early intervention pardon me get a drink so much um it's a really kind of common character trait that we have <laughs> for those of us who work with itty bitty children is to always see the glasses half full <clears throat> and to always look at what a kid's strengths are and to always just be uh so positive which is absolutely fantastic and which is exactly what we need to be doing but Sometimes when we do that, we, even as a therapist, will overestimate a child's skills. And so when we do that, we really set ourselves up for in that, especially that first six-month IFSP, when we've overestimated a child's skills, meaning that we have, a child has had some emerging skills that we have given them um, full credit for without, again, noting, gosh, he can only do that when it's cued. He's only done that three or four times. He's, that's not an established skill. So then it looks like during that whole first treatment period that we haven't made very much progress because at the very beginning, again, we didn't know that that, uh, that differentiation between whether a skill was mastered or emerging or, again, we overestimated a child's skills and that can happen really a lot in early intervention too because so much of our what we are doing with children is parent reported and so if they have waved bye-bye exactly two times in their whole life a child and the therapist just says can he wave bye-bye and mom says well yeah and we just <laughs> put the plus on the assessment and don't really talk about well gosh I'm not really seeing a lot of other gestures what other kinds of gestures when did that happen and then without really really talking about it and questioning mom and you know talking about the consistency or the frequency you know again we shoot ourselves in the foot because we have given a child credit for things that he's really 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 not acquired yet and so be super careful with that um and and if you, if that is your tendency you know when you're evaluating a child then you just want to pull your reins back <laughs> and not do that and that's certainly something that I struggle with a lot in my career and again I think it's from a good place because you want to recognize a child's strengths and you want to give them full credit for everything that they can do and you want to be their cheerleader and their advocate but at the same time you aren't really, really, really going to be working on the right things because you are way up here working on something when, again, the, there are some gaps missing below. So be super careful about that. And um, that's why when I put checklists and when I put instructions in 
uh, like the autism workbook for parents, and I say, even if your child is much older than 12 months, start with the 12-month checklist. Start with what they're doing. And again, guys, you could say, well, Laura, why aren't you going to say six to nine months or three to six months, why aren't you starting right there at the very beginning? That would be the kind of thing that we do as evaluators and as professionals. But for parents, they have a hard time with a two-year-old looking at a 12-month checklist and realizing that skills aren't there. That they And they start to really, they I mean, they've referred their kid for speech. They know, they obviously know there's a problem. But when they really start to see how wide that gap is, that can be very disconcerting and very discouraging. And so uh, even even then, you know, we really need to be talking about uh, to, to parents and say, you know, don't get upset or defensive or dismissive. Some parents will kind of get dismissive about it because they're saying, well, I don't understand why you're looking at that 12-month stuff. He's three. Why, why is that even important? And sometimes they, you know, again, these are just natural uh, they may not be saying that to you. They may not be brave enough <laughs> to say that kind of thing to you, but you can kind of see that it's happening. And so we have to know that those things are natural and normal. And we have to talk to talk to them and say, you know, gosh, I really kind of do this too. I really am prone to inflate, sometimes over inflate, what a child's skills really, really are because I just, I'm like you, I just love him so much and I just, I just want the best for him and I just don't want anything to be, you know, really wrong. And so, you know, share that with a parent and say, you know, I have a tendency to do this too, but here's what's going to happen. If we don't really take an honest look at what he can and can't do, we're going to start working with him. We're going to do things with him that just make him so mad and make him so frustrated. And he's just not going to want to be with us. He's going to run away. He's going to cry. He's going to pitch a fit, all those things. And so that's why we are really, really, really talking with them about uh, why it's so important to do that very accurate uh, developmental assessment at the beginning. All right. So we've already gone through the, a couple of um, real life. Well, we've only done one. Let's do another one. Let's do another real life example of where we as therapists can really kind of blow it with a kid and because we're not meeting them at their current developmental level. And so we sort of talked about this for expressive language, that that little girl that I gave the example with the puzzle pieces, where, you know, we, we think, okay, she's going to talk, so we're going to go in and start working on single words, single word imitations. Yet we realize, gosh, she may be down here. Sometimes, I mean, this can happen even when you're looking at a child even if the goal is receptive language. And let's say that we have a little guy who is pretty, um, he, he's a little more engaged in that he, let's say that his, let's say that his goal, let's just do the example that's right here. So let's say a three-year-old doesn't follow many verbal directions. And so, you know, of course, that's going to be your goal. You, you want him to be able to do that. He's not going to do very well in his little preschool classroom, in your, even in a, you know, in your public school, private school, whatever setting that you're in, whatever. He's not going to do very well in a situation like that. And so you know that you're going to have to work on receptive language with him. And let's just say, and, and we're looking at this, remember, so that we can figure out how we're going to meet the child where he is. And so uh, a kid like this, so let, let's say he, he's a kid who doesn't outright ignore or outright avoid, but let's just say you give him a direction. He's just kind of looking around like, I know that you're asking me to do something, but I can't figure it out. And so what are we going to do with, with a kid like that? And so again, with, with uh, kind of a, with, with your original 
approach to your, you know, follow verbal directions, you might just immediately start with lots, you know, just a barrage of getting him to do different things. And again, unless you really, really look at what he's doing, uh, you may be missing something here. And so that's my whole point here. You've got to tease out uh, what concepts are difficult for him and and help him understand what those words mean so that he's going to be able to do what other people ask him to do. So for our initial strategy, that may even be too hard, though. It, it may be that he um, he's just going to need more visual cues so that you're going to need to point and show him what you've said. And so, again, it may need that he just needs extra processing time. And so if you're a therapist, these are the things that we're going to be talking about with parents at the beginning. These are the things, our cueing strategies and, and those um, approaches. And so we have to be super, super careful that we are talking with his parents about, about you know, using keywords and simpler requests. And, again, my point here is just that sometimes you can't start with what that long-term goal is going to be. You're going to have to really, really, again, tease all this out so that you're meeting that little guy where he is. And, it, you know, uh, I, we can make up a million scenarios here, but I hope that you're getting my point with that we, um, again, have to get, it, it is fine to start with where a child is currently functioning, where things are just barely emerging. Those that's what our time is going to be uh, best spent doing in those first few sessions so that um, we are getting there. So if a kid doesn't even seem to notice that you're in the room or if a, he is doing every kind of acting out because you are trying to get him to do something different, that's when you know I've just got to stop all this, what I'm trying to do. I've got to, I've got to quit adding to the chaos with this kid and do more of what I can to uh, get in there and have him have him let me join him. And so that's really where um, Dr. Greenspan and Hannon and all of those folks who have ever taught us so much about following a child's lead, that, that's really, really meeting a child where he or she is, is, is really looking at that. And this is, but it doesn't last forever. And it doesn't mean, and, and you'll have to tell parents this and they'll say, you know, I've had parents say to me just outright, you know, because I'm so, I, I do a lot of, I do a lot of saying to parents, we're not going to work on talking yet. You know, we're not there yet. And so, you know, they'll just flat out say something like, well, when are we going to work on talking? And you say, after we've done these things. And again, you know, really, really explaining to them what, um, that we've got, we've got to get in there at the beginning and get that pleasant participation and that cooperation going first so that a child, again, is not really, really, um, negatively reacting every time and that your whole time with the child isn't spent with that just fighting him to uh, get him to do what you want him to do and so that's when you know that you've got to take a step back so uh, let me make sure that I've shared everything that I wanted to share with you um, with this and again, all this information is from the Autism Workbook. There's some really specific things about how to select toys and activities. And I think the most important thing to say here is anytime a toy is too complicated, we're just going to assume that a child will use the toy inappropriately. And so when we have kids that are throwing toys and when they are stemming with the toy or eating the toy, we know... Um, 
gosh, he or she isn't going to be able to play with this without lots of teaching and lots of opportunities to practice. So we've got to, again, get a, get a child's correct developmental level from the very beginning so that we know um, that we can really, really reduce the likelihood that a child will use that toy inappropriately. And so talk with parents about that too, because you may have a child who's three or four chronologically that you're seeing with red flags for autism, but because they're developmentally really at that 12 to 18 month level, and sometimes we have to talk to parents about you know, why they, they'll say, I have this whole house full of toys, yet he doesn't play with anything. And a lot of times they do think it's that personal interest and preference. And some, and it is, it is, but the real problem is that they just don't have those fine motor and cognitive skills to, to play. And so they're missing those little, they're, they're missing those prerequisite things too. And so you're going to have to talk to parents about that and uh, really, really say the reason that he's not playing with all these things you know, it's because, we're, again, we're not, whatever it is, whatever it happens to be for that individual child, and really, really explain that, but really talk about we're going to have to back this down. We're going to have to give him simpler toys to play with, and some parents will get a little bit offended by that, but when you talk with them about why and you show them how well that works, you know, he can't play with this yet, or the reason that he's just over here kind of stemming on this toy is because you know, this, the things that we've tried to introduce to him are too hard. And so when we tell a parent that, and again, they see how successful it is when we bring that back down, um, they're going to buy into that. And, and it's hard sometimes to really find that just right balance for toys between what interests a kid and then what they can really, really do. And so what I try to do when selecting toys and activities for, especially these first few sessions, to get things that they already like and to get things that they can already do, uh, but I like it when there's just a little bit of a component that, 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 that they can't do so that there's a reason for me to be there. But it can't be so much that it doesn't hold their attention and, it can't, and I can't place so many demands on them. You know, you've got to sign more. You've got to say, please. You've got, if you want the ball, you have to say it. You know, with those, that's too hard. That's too hard for any kid that's not verbal in those very first sessions. And so, again, um, don't, don't mess up your toy selection by making your communication demand too hard. And I hope that makes sense to you, too. And so, again, this isn't forever. This is just in these first few sessions or when there's been a history of negativity with a child when we're trying to get back on the right foot. Another real important factor to consider at this stage of treatment for children is timing. There's a section about this in the Autism Workbook that if you want to read that word for word. But that's what the questions on this sheet were really, really about, too. You know, when is she at her best? When is she at her worst? And so, you know, we talk with parents about that and say, you know, when you're going to work with her, well, first of all, kids need to communicate all day long. They need to communicate when they're sick. They need to communicate when they're hungry. They need to communicate all the time. But... <laughs> When we're trying to teach them something new and when there's been a history of negativity and when you already have a child who wants to avoid and uh, run away from you or hurt you because you're too uh, invasive for them or, you know, you're too in their face. They just, they can't take it. That's what you, t you talk to parents about timing for. And so, again, not all of us as therapists, you know, we only have 
you know, there are only so many morning appointments. You know, not every kid can see you for therapy at their optimal time. But if a parent tells you, you know, and you know, gosh, this is a kid with red flags for autism. He has difficulty with transitions. Mom has already talked to me about how hard sleeping is for him. And, you know, they just kind of go on and you just kind of know, gosh, I better not schedule him at two o'clock. And so you know these things, but then you you also know to tell a parent and look, you don't need to really, especially at the beginning here, when you're trying to work with him on, uh, you know, the, the things that we've talked about, the really specific activities. When he's sleepy or when he's running a low-grade fever, you know, those are not the times to do these kinds of things. Uh, timing is so, so important, and especially, again, when we're looking at a child when we're just getting started with the child. So talk with parents about that, and, and you know that as a therapist, and be sure that you're applying that information. And teach. I, I want to talk about this, too. Uh, with that timing thing, sometimes when we do see a kid and they're just so dysregulated and it's just such a bad day, that's where we can really, really focus on teaching a parent responsiveness or seeing what a parent already does when a child has had a meltdown or a tantrum, you know, whatever it happens to be. You can really see um, what they've already, what a parent already does to comfort a child and really how fast a kid can recover. And sometimes a parent doesn't think that's a valuable, parents won't think that's a valuable part of therapy time. But I get great information from there because I want to see how long it takes a kid to recover. I want to see, does mom hold him and give him a lot of physical, um, tactile, is she responsive that way? Does that calm him? Or is he the kind of kid that we just need to give a minute to let him settle down and then let him come back to us? And so these these issues are so really, really important at the very beginning of therapy, too, so that we can help a parent and help us uh, really see what works when we kind of pushed a kid over the edge and when they are falling apart. And so when we do need to know what are some calming strategies we can use. And sometimes as a therapist, you know, I'll think, oh gosh, I've just, I've, I've worked for almost 30 years here. I, I've seen it all. I know it all. And all those crazy things we say to ourselves that aren't even true. And we can see a parent do something that works so well for a kid. And this might be six months in. And I think, gosh, I wish I'd taken the time to know this six months ago that this really, really worked better for him. And so at the very beginning of therapy, it's so good to take that time to really, really understand what helps a kid calm down, what helps a kid regulate, and uh, really, really uh, understand that too. One other thing that I really want to talk about as we close this show, when we are focusing on meeting a child where he or she is, what do we do about those negative behaviors? What do we do uh, when a child is really, really tearing things up or hurting you or hurting himself? You know, of course, we are not going to let a kid do those things. You are going to do everything you can to prevent those things from happening in the first place or shut it down when, it, when you start to see that it's about to go there. And redirection and distraction are just fantastic strategies for toddlers for every toddler but again sometimes we get so caught up in that disciplining part that we kind of go overboard on that and so we need to certainly correct those things you know no hitting hitting hurts and then move right along to do something else but I'm not even really talking about those behaviors I'm talking about things that are just really really petty or things that you um Let's say he sort of started to throw the toys. What are we going to do about that? 
ignore it. You know, if, if he wants to throw that day, play balls, play balloons, do something that he can really functionally use that movement, but don't make every little thing a big issue. And some therapists get so caught up in, I got to control this kid's behavior. I got to get, I got to get this behavior under control before I can do anything. I, you know, and they're just so focused on that, that I think, when are you ever going to get to speech? When are you, when are you ever going to get to that? And so when we meet a kid where he is at the beginning and we're not doing all that heavy handed stuff, that's going to take a lot of these behavioral things away. And so that's a relief for us as early interventionists. And one, one other thing that I want to say that's that's I, I, I want to close with this because that's here in the autism workbook and it's it's just I love it I love that I saw this uh, research we have to give for everybody no matter if it's a two-year-old with autism in speech therapy who is not having a great day or whether it's you his speech pathologist who is also not having a great day or whether it's his mom who is also not having a great day for every negative comment that a person, and we're, we'll just personalize it here for the kid, for every negative comment that they hear, they need eight positive comments to kind of balance that out. And so it's not one-to-one -one or whatever. It's eight-to-one. And when you start thinking about that and when you start keeping some data on yourself versus positive versus negative things or corrective things and even cues like oh put your lips together I mean that's that's still kind of even though we say it with a smile and even though we have to do it and it's therapeutic it's still a negative it's still there's still a negative component there because it's not praise and so we need to think about that as therapists and we certainly need to think about that as therapists for children who are Again, these red flags for autism may already have an autism diagnosis. Think about just how many more things that they need to hear that are positive. And again, if we are looking at using this approach primarily at the beginning with children who have had or are likely to have a negative experience with therapy, that is such an important thing uh, for us to do. So that eight to one ratio, that's what I want to, uh, with positive to negative, that's what I want to leave you with today where we are talking about how we can meet a child where he or she is. If you need more ideas for designing a comprehensive treatment plan for a toddler or a preschooler with signs of autism, I can certainly help you. And that's what the Autism Workbook is all about. Today, we've done focus one of this in show number 402 here. Go back and listen to 401 for explaining autism to parents. Or if you are a parent and you want to really uh, understand the criteria for autism and what it takes for a kid to get an autism diagnosis, go back and listen to that show. And then I hope that you are looking forward to the next 11 shows in this series where we uh, take uh, a look at the other evidence-based practices that are most recommended for children with autism. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and thank you so much for joining me for Teach Me to Talk, the podcast.